0: So, welcome to another Invested Investor podcast. I'm sat opposite Nathan Hill, who is a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. So, Nathan, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got into angel investing? I started off life as a physicist. I guess the
1: seminal learning point for me as an 18-year-old was that I was really a rubbish physicist. And my tutor, the late Harry Rosenberg, great solid-state physicist, introduced me to Martin Wood, who was one of the founders of Oxford Instruments, with the amazing introduction that I hope all of you will benefit from, which was, Martin, you've got to meet this guy, Nathan Hill. He's about the worst physicist who I've ever tutored, <laughs> but he could sure as hell sell a shedload of superconducting magnets for you. <laughs> and that stopped me from the idea of doing a PhD at Oxford and onto being a salesman for Oxford Instruments, where I spent my first happy 12 years or so in Germany, in Japan, in the USA. and ending up as managing director of two businesses in Cambridge.
0: Okay. What year was this when you were working for Oxford Instruments? That would have been from, well,
1: as a student actually, and then from 1987 to 1999. And then I left and started QI3, my own business in technology commercialization in Cambridge. And that business, the thing I really love is selling. And it's selling, but also finding that bite point or that clutch point or leverage or pivot where technology can really be saleable. And I just love following the sales opportunities for that. And QI3 was really based around doing that in sensing and instrumentation technologies, starting off very much broad in security, aerospace, defense, semiconductors, medical, environmental. But over the last 10 years or so, we've done more and more in the space sector, starting off with Mars exploration and the technologies required for British industrial involvement in the Mars programme, but more laterally in uses of space data for novel businesses, a lot of which has ended up with a cluster of uh, investments and businesses around the Harwell Science Park. And that's been absolutely fascinating. So uh, nowadays, I'd say we're about 75% or so in the space sector. And that's QI3, the first business I founded, and went on doing that happily until 2010 or so. And it's still going. It's 19 years old now. But how big is the company now? Oh, it's a small business. with so very much boutique. But the special thing about it is it deals with very, very big companies. So we do a lot of work for very large multinationals in their space and aerospace defence technology strategy, and also for the agencies, people like the European Space Agency, UK space agencies, universities, and people like that.
0: Okay. So in 2010, you're about to say you transitioned? Yeah, I guess. I'm quite a sort of
1: impetuous character, I guess. And I got bored of doing consulting on the clock. And so I handed that little bomb of managing that over to my co-director, another ex-Oxford Instruments MD, a guy called Robin Higgins, who's been running that business now for the last eight years. And I went into angel investing really full-time from then. I got suckered back into a couple of interesting projects on space technology and on graphene during the time, really, when I was building my angel portfolio. But I've been doing that since 2010.
0: So how large is your portfolio at the moment? I always
1: think that's a rather, you know, people always go, how big is your portfolio sort of thing. (laughs) It's more the quality of the portfolio I'm interested in. But uh, I guess to answer the question directly, I've made 15 angel investments and recently my first VC investment. And I also have two operating businesses: QI3, the space tech business, and Honest Grapes, an online wine
0: club. In terms of your angel investing, can you talk about any successes and failures over the last eight years? Uh, yeah, but I always wince at the failures. So
1: <laughs> I think I was very lucky in that during the lifetime of QI3 as a business, consulting in space tech and other sensing instrumentation technologies. I managed to do quite a number of what really sweat equity investments or deferred fee arrangements. Because we were doing really well as a business with large clients who were paying us, I'd quite often see very interesting small businesses or spin-out businesses that needed help but couldn't afford us. And so I used to do a couple of deals a year where I'd say, okay, look, I've got a salesman's nose. I think this is going to work. Either pay me later when you've got some money coming in, or give me a few percent of your equity and let's see how we get on. And I did some very, very successful both cash deals and equity deals through that. Since I started what I call my first fund, as it were, because I treat each portfolio as a fund, I started that and that's where the 15 investments are. Of that, I've had a 25x exit, a 37x exit quite recently. And that's the good news. I've had one company that's paid its investment back in dividends so far, and will probably do so again, roughly. It should double before it exits. And I've got five nasty failures and six companies left in play. This is after about eight years. And of those six companies in play... With the following wind, I'd hope that about maybe two or three of them should have good exits still.
0: So the difference there, the companies that have succeeded compared to the companies that have failed, what are the reasons for this? Partly, it's been my own learning as to what to
1: invest in and what not to invest in. The rest of it's mostly down to people. Yeah,
0: As most other (laughs) angels will tell you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So you've got full-time angel investing, you're consulting, and you're running your own business. How do you balance all of this? Insomnia helps.
1: Um, (laughs) I think, to be honest, it's sort of um, passion and enthusiasm. I I love what I'm doing, so I get on with it. I tend to look at everything as part of an overall portfolio of activities, which, you know, hopefully somewhere as well involves sort of life and family and friends, as well as business and investment activities. You took a nice break to New Zealand and Australia last year. Exactly. Yeah, that was my sabbatical for sort of four and a half months or so. So I have a set of principles which I try to follow myself and also write into the contracts for every employee in all of my businesses. And that is doing great things for customers first, working ethically and honestly, having fun, making a decent living, and then enjoy the weekends with your family and friends and so on. So I think actually having a balance of what you spend your life doing and encouraging that atmosphere in the companies I founded is pretty important. I think, by the way, while we're doing all of this sort of success story, I founded four companies and we've spoken about three. So there's QI3, QI3 Ventures, which I, I call the sort of portfolio of investments, and Honest Grapes, the online wine club. But I also set up a wine bar about 13 years ago in Cambridge, which spectacularly collapsed and it was the fastest way of losing a million pounds <laughs> that I've managed to find. So you, know, you learn from your failures as an investor and as an entrepreneur as well. But going back to your question of how do you balance all of that? It's really governed by the portfolio and by the need. So if we take them in turn, QI3 is a successful boutique business. I still spend a day or so a week doing consulting. I tend to get suckered into great projects where there's exciting things and I can add value. And actually that business, although it's boutique, is actually growing quite fast at the moment. So it's actually cyclically needing more attention as we're picking up more business in the space arena. You know, I like selling, so I see prospects and I go and sell to them, and that gives us more work to do. The wine business has gone from naught to two and a bit million pounds turnover in three years. Wine is quite a struggle of a business. It's a retail business. It's online. It's got events. I've invested a lot in that as basically bankrolling it, and that's gone pretty well. But it's also needed support at various stages, most notably, actually, in terms of getting the management of that right. And making sure I can get the cash flow working properly. So, at some times, that's needed very little time in a week. At other times, it's needed to be sort of four or five days a week. At the moment, maybe two and a half days, something like that. Yeah. So, it varies, but it's my investment. I've got to get it right. If I go on to the angel investing activity, that's been really very cyclical. And when I started off in 2010, I guess I was thinking of it much more as an active angel portfolio where I'd be putting a lot of sweat and energy into every investment. Now it's ended up as a more balanced portfolio, where sometimes companies need a lot of time and help. Other times, actually, to be honest, the management are doing very well, or my co-investor mates are doing very well in their roles as NEDs or chairman or whatever to help the company along. So I can sit back and watch it succeed or sometimes often fail as well. Do you sit on any boards at the moment then? At this very moment, no. So when I took my sabbatical last year, I cycled out of quite a number of directorships before I went on the sabbatical because I felt that was right for me at that stage and right for those companies. At various stages, I've been NED, I've been chairman, I've been on the board of the UK Business Angels Association. But at this stage, I've got my hands full with two operating businesses and my portfolio. I am on the advisory board of the Space Fund, the Soafim Space Fund, which is the VC fund in which we've invested and I'm a
0: limited partner. I keep involvement, but uh, it cycles. So you've got this array of different portfolios, as you call them, and different interests in businesses, three businesses, and also consulting. Have you got any advice and methods of managing all of that? Yeah, so this is sounding quite disparate as I'm saying it, but actually,
1: everything is based around looking at your life and your activities and also your net worth as an investor and to look at it as a portfolio or, in fact, a portfolio of portfolios. So, when I had my light bulb moment back in 2009 that I needed to do things differently from just day to day consulting and building QI3, successful as that was. I actually went and read two books. One of them, which I'd recommend anybody to read, is Smarter Investing by Tim Hale. And if you're an angel investor, please read it because it won't encourage you to angel invest. It's all about passive investing in index funds or exchange-traded funds and focusing on balancing risk and asset allocation. And I found that really, really interesting book. And two of my portfolios are based entirely around Tim Hale's principles. The second book, whose name I actually can't remember, was all about matching your investment goals to your life's needs. So for example, I need to save for a bigger house, or I need to save for a pension, or I need some emergency funds for my parents or my family. I would like some extra money for some luxuries, and I'd like some risk investment because I like having fun or doing good investing in other companies. And so those two principles of investing in pots or funds and of thinking about long-term buy and hold, or alpha versus beta in investment terms. When am I going to be activists and look for above-normal returns? Or when am I going to ride the beta curve and just balance my risk versus my reward? Those two books, those two types of learning were extremely valuable to me. What I then did was split everything into the pots of what are now the two operating businesses, QI3 and Honest Grapes. In the operating businesses, I've got high return on capital for my investment. They're risky because I'm the investor, and if things go wrong, I have to fund the mistakes. They offer growth, they offer long-term dividends, and they may offer exit potential. Personally, to be honest, if QI3 pays me a nice dividend into my retirement and keeps me active in space technology... And Honest Grapes gives me lots of opportunities to visit nice vineyards and drink lots of wine for the rest of my life. I'm going to be healthy, happy, pickled, and wise, you know. <laughs> and actually the exit opportunity is less important to me than the long-term dividend opportunity. They've paid my living for many years now. I'm not likely to be anybody else's employee, although listeners, please offer me, but I'm unlikely. <laughs> and I'm just very happy, you know, space tech and wine, what more could you want? You know? The second set of pools, really, is the two passive and semi-passive investments. There, my benchmark is about 7%. It's RPI plus 4%. In fact, I do about 10 to 12% over the long term. And that's simply investing in very simple, constructed portfolios of exchange-traded funds, ETFs, with a bit of investment trust or a bit of other single-share investment, but all quoted equities sometimes that's just to spice up the return on individual portfolios. Over the long term, doing 10 to 12% compound return, long-term buy and hold, very slow rotation, nothing to do with daily trading. I'm generally in those shares for years and just reinvest the dividends to compound the growth rate. That sets a very stable basis for your pension. Yes, shares go down as well as up. So please, you know, need to look up my lazy ETF, Google lazy ETF portfolios. Okay, Most of it's just based around very careful asset allocation around lazy ETF portfolios. And that is a sensible benchmark to say, why should I do anything riskier than that? Because the people who sell you pensions would tell you that RPI plus 4%, you're doing well. Another good metric, by the way, is if you take your net worth, if you invested that in a pot and you could take 4% interest a year and live off that, then you should be happy for the rest of your life. Why be greedy? You've got enough money to live on. If you could live off 3%, you're doing really well. And if you could live off 2% of your net worth, that's almost like TIPS, You know, US index-linked treasuries, which yield about 2% or so. In other words, the safest investments in the world yield about 2%. So if you could invest your net worth, live off 2% of it, Why work for the rest of your life? I've got a lovely garden. Go out and enjoy yourself. Why do any more? Yeah. Once you get to that stage as an individual, then it's all about gaining the fun and interest out of the work you're doing and the pleasure you've got in the businesses you're investing in and the work you're doing day to day. So all of my portfolios are geared around either achieving that basis or more. Then why angel investing? I'm looking for 20% IRR. So that's the spice but I'm also looking for the fun out of it and for supporting entrepreneurs who are in great businesses that I want to be involved with. And that's why angel investing is one of my five portfolios.
0: Do you think you would, on future investments, lead an investment and maybe sit on any more boards? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's a cyclical thing. I've been
1: syndicate lead over quite a number of different investments at this very stage because I've had to fix issues and get my two operational businesses moving in different directions. I've been doing rather less active investing, but I see it very much cyclical. I'm quite young still. I've got plenty more years to do different things.
0: But you're also um, working with Space Camp at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, that's right.
1: So one of my more recent investments, so back to asset allocation, I've chosen to invest about 15% in these higher risk areas of angel investing. I wanted to be doing more in the space arena at around the same time that SOAFIM started to put their space technology fund together. And I went into that fund as a limited partner through QI3 and as an advisory board member. That has now made six investments of its own. It should end up with 20 or so. And they've put together a space camp, which is an accelerator program. And I'm working as an entrepreneur in residence on that program. We're only in the sort of second week of that program at the moment, but it's great fun. We've got six companies in there. Three of them more on the upstream side of components and technologies, and three more on the downstream side of data derived from
0: space assets. Well, that sounds really interesting. So you talked about active and passive involvement in angel investing. When do you feel it's best to either lead or be a chair or NED? And when do you feel it's best to sit back and let others do the heavy lifting? I don't think there's a shrink-wrapped answer to that, but
1: I'll maybe sort of talk about a few experiences. It's been a big lesson for me because, as I said earlier, I started off looking at it very much as a wholly active portfolio, and now it's more balanced. And it's really interesting to listen to these podcasts, to chat with my other investor mates and entrepreneurs and actually learn from them where people really benefit from Angel's involvement. So my first big loss, you asked earlier about wins and losses, was actually an instrumentation business. Now, look, I was an ex-MD of Oxford Instruments. I should know instrumentation. And I led a syndicate, which was a decent market prospect, and it collapsed within 15 months. And I was the NED, and it was a tremendously humbling experience, more than humbling, horrible experience. Basically, without going into details or naming names, it's an instrumentation business where the technology wasn't really as well developed as we thought it was and although they had some installations it couldn't make that step from the working well in a lab to working well on a factory floor let's leave it at that sort of level for now it had a decent plausible nice guy running the business but he couldn't get further sales and so despite us capitalizing the business very well i think it was about one and a third one and a half million pounds in the round we put in it ran out of money in 15 months so you had the toxic combination of a non-delivering company, a VC investing alongside angels. Big note there, choose your co-investors. And as an NED, I was spending a day a month involved in the business, but my input as an NED, I didn't feel was really being listened to. But what could I do about it? You either kick out the CEO and become the CEO yourself, which means I've got yet another business to run. (laughs) Okay. Or you do nothing about it, which means the business goes to the wall. Or you just try and give more input at board meetings and hope you're listened to. And actually, it's a really difficult position to be in because you feel like a hostage to a situation and everybody's looking at you as the expert. But actually, what are you supposed to do? And in the end, I poured more and more time into it and it still went bust because, in the end, it's the team who's got to run the business. Your role as an investor should be as an active supporter and mentor and friend of the business, not as the person who's criticising the management team and ultimately kicking them out and doing it yourself. And I've been in that position three times now where management fail and therefore the business fails and the investors are left holding the baby, basically.
0: There's actually some research being done in Cambridge about whether or not CEOs can be Taught or mentored or coached into being better CEOs. And it's, it's the research of maybe in your scenario, if this research had been how many years ago it was.
1: And I think that's really important because, you know, I got into it as an entrepreneur who accidentally got into sweat equity investments, who then started to do it more formally. Most of the other people I know got into it either by inheritance, realizing they had a pot of money they needed to do something with, or as exited entrepreneurs who got their inheritance, who made their inheritance for themselves, as it were, and therefore started to say, I don't want to run another business. Now I'll do that. I'm a hybrid. I'm running businesses and investing. And so I think a lot of us who are angels think we know best and maybe do know a bit better than the people we're investing in. But ultimately, my role as an angel is not to run the business. It's to help the management to run the business. And sometimes that can just be moving to more passive side, giving people contacts, helping them along the way, giving them a bit of advice. That can be the odd phone call or Skype thing. After that first big loss, I look at a couple of successes. My recent exit got superb support from two of my co-investors, Tim Devere Green and Paul Anson, wonderful guys to work with, who basically supported that business in getting its operational execution right and in representing us as passive investors, all of us as the investors through five and a half years, and through the final nine months to exit to private equity, what better friends can you have than ones who, maybe I've got the inverse Midas touch, the one I was NED of, collapsed, the one they were NEDs of, has had a superb exit. Another investment that is doing reasonably well, I'm looking for great things from, as a team, we introduced, it's a company in Bristol doing deep silicon technology. It's not just our role as NEDs, but also the introductions we've made, bringing investors and support from founders of ARM and CSR into that deep silicon business. Frankly, I know quite a lot about the physics of silicon, about semiconductors. I don't know about wireless technologies. So our ability as Cambridge, London sort of angels to bring in people who've been very successful in that technology arena is really useful. One huge benefit I've got from running a technology commercialization business is I've got a very wide network of deep tech experts in the fields in which I'm likely to invest. And that's really helped in terms of being able to evaluate and then support businesses I'm involved with.
0: You touched on you have an investment there in, in Bristol. How do you feel about... Some angels like to keep it quite close to them. Some angels are fine with being abroad and having various companies or whatever. What's your position on location of investments? So, for my passive investments, I invest in the world,
1: passively in the world, and quite a lot of sort of world indices. For my angel investments, I really look to be within a couple of hours of the companies. The benefits as a UK investor from using the UK tax breaks, enterprise investment scheme, seed enterprise investment scheme, I do working capital loans as well. Those benefits make it sensible to have most of my investments in the UK, but not all of them. So generally, I like to be within striking distance of the companies. I think the other important thing, though, is we're all investing our time, not just our money. And our time is most often our scarcest resource, a scarcer resource than money. As investors, we're in the privileged position of being able to feed ourselves, house ourselves, keep the house warm. So invest your time as well as your money wisely, meddle where it's helpful, and catch a bomb only if you can pass it on before it explodes or if you can handle the explosion. So I think the active versus passive thing for me has changed quite a lot over time. And quite a lot of the support I'm giving to companies at this very moment is actually through advice and support rather than sitting on boards. But that will change over time. It's bound to be.
0: So, Nathan, can you tell us a little bit more about your portfolio management?
1: Yeah, so I'll focus mainly on the angel investments, but if I briefly deal with the more passive investments, I said earlier, Google lazy ETF portfolios. It's all about balancing your risks on beta style investments. So, not expecting to outperform markets, but to balance your risks by deciding how much risk versus how much reward. Everything I've learned in that is about learning good investment discipline, long-term buy and hold. The time to buy is now. I made so many mistakes trying to actively manage a passive portfolio. You've just got to mind switch and realize that it's all about long-term reinvestment of dividends and just compounding. And you've got to learn good investment behaviors and just spend most of your effort thinking about the initial asset allocation and then gradually over time refining that asset allocation. So that's the passive stuff. But it's a very useful benchmark. The second thing is I unitize everything. It takes the emotion out of it a bit. Look it up. It's just a bit of spreadsheet work. You can turn all of your portfolios into something more like a unit trust portfolio with accumulation units and income units. I do that with my angel portfolio. I do it with my two operating businesses. People think I'm bonkers. To be honest, it's very little work once you've set it up but it takes the emotion out of it to be able to look at your portfolios and say, is that portfolio hitting my benchmark or isn't it? And I can follow all of those portfolios over the last 10 years or so. And it's a really, really useful way of doing it. And maybe me as a physicist, but hey, it's just a bit of spreadsheet work. (laughs) On to the angel stuff. So you set goals and focus on total return in the angel portfolio. I'm looking to beat 20% in the long term. On my current fund, so I set everything up as a series of three funds through my what I anticipate to be my investment lifetime, almost like a, a mini VC. I've completed the first fund, and I'm now into my second fund. Okay, On my first fund, you haven't asked me the magical question, am I cash up <laughs> so far? I am cash up. I'm currently at 13% IRR and I expect to reach my 20 to 25% IRR goal on my first portfolio. To be frank, though, that's all about having two big successes. So, you know, a lot of them luck. A little go bit of wrong. luck, though. A bit of luck. Well, a bit of <laughs> luck. And, you know, Obviously. The, the luck we call inspired judgment. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. The failures were uninspired judgment. So, unitize everything, set benchmarks, and then monitor, but not too frequently. So with my passive investments, I download the prices once a month, stick them into the spreadsheet, but I only really look at everything once a quarter and rebalance every maybe twice a year maximum. I really try to leave it alone. Don't meddle. On the angel investments, I'm looking for quarterly reports from each of the companies. Obviously, if I'm an NED or whatever, I'll be looking for monthly reports. Treat the money as a fund. My recipe is to have – and I I know different people have got different recipes – I have about a third of the money in the fund for new investments and about two-thirds for follow-ons. And as I'm getting towards the end of a fund, I'll decide whether to reinvest or to say, okay, that fund's closed now. I'll bring the money into the new one. As I said, I'm on to my second fund now. I've made three investments in the new fund, the VC investment, two angel investments, a working capital investment. Have a clear investment thesis. What types of companies are you interested in investing in? What floats your boat? How are you going to manage your pipeline? And how are you going to evaluate the potential financial return for each investment you go into? And that really is worth doing. I think a really important thing is not to be in a hurry. It's very easy. I've pulled out of an investment recently where people were saying, Oh yeah, you've got to make your mind up quickly. You're in right at the end here. You know, you've got to put your 50,000 in right at the end here otherwise it's closed. You'll regret much more the investments you make that you shouldn't have made, rather than the investments that went well that got away from you because you said no or you just didn't have the time to say yes. I never really worry about the ones that got away. I monitor them a little bit and you know you always think, "Oh, could I've invested in?" Deep mind, or something like that. I wasn't there at the time. Okay. Sometimes I'm there at the time and I miss it. Sometimes I didn't hear about it. I'm too late. Good luck. Well done for the people who are in it. I wasn't there. The ones I regret more are the ones I did put money into and then went bust. And it's a natural regret. What you should really focus on is backing winners the ones that look good, the ones that you think you can invest in your second, third, and fourth investment round and take right through to an exit don't be in a hurry. Five key criteria, absolute rock solid, are investing in a team that's credible to deliver on the business plan that they're pitching to you. Look them in the whites of the eyes and think, can I trust those people with my money Do I think they can deliver on the plan they're pitching me? Is the market interesting and exciting? I've heard other people say you know, they want to invest in things that are doing good for the world. I prefer to do things good for the world as well, but ultimately, there needs to be a market for that. So is this something in which I see an interesting market that's growing or where I can see a real place for that company? The third thing is differentiation. In which zone is this company going to disrupt that market and make a difference against its competitors? How is it going to stand out? The fourth one is intellectual property, or at least a moat. What's the thing that's going to stop everybody else doing the same thing? Is there something in their technology? Is there something in their business model that stops people just copying them and beating them to it? The fifth thing, then, is the business model. You can see all the good pitches in the world without quite getting to the heart of how that management team, with that proposition, is going to crank a handle that makes money out of what they're doing. And I want to understand that business model. Notice, by the way, it goes strictly in that order. The team comes first and foremost. The other four things, market, differentiation, intellectual property, and business model come after that. A great team can make a good business out of a mediocre proposition. A bad team can bugger up and kill any business, any piece of gold you give them. Once I've got my proposition then, choose your co-investors. I tend not to go into propositions where there are VCs involved. I've already said I have a separate investment, which is a VC fund. But as an angel, I tend to find that a group of people managing our own money are quite well aligned, particularly if we all have the same class of share. People who are managing other people's money and have got liquidation preferences, management fees, and things like that involved, they're just not aligned. It's not that they're bad people. It's that their interests aren't aligned. For me, it's oil and water. I've been burned twice. I won't do it a third time. The last bit of that then is the money arc, the investment arc. Just yesterday, a company, not one that I've invested in, but a company has gone bust. It's not gone bust, it's gone bust for its shareholders because it's been sold out at 90% loss to its shareholders. Why? Because it ran out of money and got taken over by a competitor. So as an angel, I tend not just to look at the round I'm investing in, but I think how much money will that business need through to some kind of exit or through to some kind of Cash break even. Can I participate in those rounds? Will it be sensible for me to do so? If the investment arc doesn't feel right to me and they're going to be more cash consumptive than I can be involved with, I can't necessarily see a point for me investing in it because the inevitable change in strategy and change in equity structure will mean that I'll be crowded out and so will my other co investors. I know that my VC colleagues say that that's unambitious and I'm looking for smaller businesses than they are, that's fine with me. I've got plenty of deal flow, plenty of opportunity to invest. Frankly, the only two days when a share price matters are the day you buy it and the day you sell it, and the rest of it is needless heartache. So why not think about those two dates and the cash it might need to go in between one and the other? So I think thinking about the financial arc and your co-investors is pretty important there. You hear all sorts of horror stories, and I've been involved in some of them, where you're just in bed with people who aren't very nice or who've got different investment aims from you. And in the end, the success stories are going to be built where there's some alignment and where everybody succeeds on exit.
0: That is incredibly useful for a lot of angel investors and people thinking of getting into angel investing. Let's spin it on its head just before we go to our final point that we want to speak about because it's Friday. Have you got any tips to entrepreneurs? Communicate and be honest. Probably those two.
1: As an entrepreneur, I've been one many times and I coach and mentor plenty. You still are one, aren't you? I still am one, yeah, exactly, yeah. I benefit from other people's help, not just the help I'm giving to people. It's, it's a sort of ecosystem. But as an entrepreneur, be honest when you're pitching because that honesty will it'll shine through to people. And I like to invest in people who are clever. Who are well meaning, who are in good markets, but who I feel I can trust with the money I've earned. Communicate, keep to that quarterly discipline. You don't really need to more frequently, unless you've got bits of good news or unfortunately bad news. But communicate with your investors. It's so tiresome just to hear from your investee companies when they're there with the begging bowl needing the next emergency round. If you've had that quarterly communication, you've got a feeling for what they're up to they invite you once a year to some kind of shareholders gig. You can see the team and get a feeling for them. You're more inspired to feel part of that team involved and not just a money tap. To be honest, those are the two things I'd say to entrepreneurs. But I guess if there is a third thing, it's go for it. Celebrate your successes, work hard, learn from your failures. I've had plenty. Be like me, fail, but then learn from it.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about one that hasn't failed. And also, like I said, it's Friday afternoon. It's sunny. Got a lovely garden here. You also have, as you said earlier, got a pretty successful wine club, Honest Grapes. Can you just tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, of course. So many of my friends think that I invested in a wine business either as a way of sort of exploring my interest in wine, which has been something I've enjoyed ever since living in Germany for a few years, 30 years ago, or they think it's just a sensible way of drinking the profits. Of the money I've made from QI3 and from engine investing. In fact, it's nothing to do with that. It's, it's a serious investment, and it's one that we've taken from zero to a couple of million turnover and now on onwards from that over the last three years or so. It's an online offline hybrid. So it's e commerce plus social, and the social is through 250 events or so a year, wine fairs, personal advice to people. The e commerce is a slick website, but it's one that's really there to deliver to its members. And the gap I spotted in the market, really, was a non-fuddy-duddy, non-elitist way of offering really great artisanal wines to private individuals like myself, really, who enjoy wine but don't want to be bamboozled by all of the offers that they get from traditional merchants, or frankly, the oldness of it. The main wine merchants in London are offering, really, to an audience of 60-year-old plus, whereas we're a young club. We're aiming at 30, 40, 50-year-olds, with about 80% of our members being between the age of 30 and upper 40s. It's really about the celebration of great wine. But as a business, basically, our customers are high-yielding, reasonably well-off. They generally enjoy wine, but don't see themselves as wine buffs. And at every level, from a spend of £300 a year up to tens of thousands a year, We offer every individual their own personal wine guru to sort of support them through their exploration of wine. We bring winemakers in from around the world to meet our members. We run individual portfolios for people. We think of it really more as investment in your future drinking pleasure, more than wine as an investment. Although, frankly, I've made some decent money out of investing in wine as well. But for me, to be honest, I'm there to drink it, celebrate it, and enjoy it, and love doing that with members. And it's such a pleasure to introduce people to the producer of wine, celebrate that. We had a guy last week, a guy I met in Australia called Tara Sakota, who's a surfer, a biker, a punk rocker. He makes beautiful Pinot Noir, Grenache, Syrah, all sorts of wonderful wines in Adelaide Hills. He just inspired people. We took him to a club in Mayfair, brought a couple of dozen of our members and club members around to meet him drank his wines, and everybody went mad and just bought his wines at the end of the evening. And that's the great pleasure that running a business like that can inspire. As an investment, it's an investment I funded through a loan from one of my other businesses. It's got itself to a decent state now, and we're growing at a reasonable rate. So yeah, it's just great fun. And it's lovely to be involved in space tech and wine daily.
0: (laughs) There's an interesting, intriguing mix of companies, space and wine. Absolutely. Bring them together. Well, Nathan, this has been absolutely brilliant. I'm sure all our listeners would love to hear more over a glass of wine. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from the invested investor.